0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. And I mean, Bob should have just said it's, it's the Bengals and the Rams. It's not that exciting of a day, right? We don't, we don't live near either of those places. Okay. Well, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is Matt Leloyan. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Liberty. Great to have you with us this morning uh, for whatever reason you find yourself here. And as Bob said, we, uh, we do get to kick off a new series in the book of Philippians. Really excited about this. You can go ahead and make your way there in your Bible. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that Bob mentioned that are under the seats there, page 980 uh, is where you'll find Philippians chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of a background just to kind of get our heads around and into this book, this letter. Uh, this is a letter in its original form. It was a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the early 60s AD. And it's written to the church in a city called Philippi, which was in a place called Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Modern-day Greece is where this city uh, was and is, although it's called a different name now. Ten years earlier... During his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul planted Europe's first church there. So prior to the church at Philippi, all the churches that had been planted from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria were all in Asia. We're all in a different continent. This is Europe's first church plant. And I promise you, I wish we were this smart. We're not smart enough to organize this. But if you're following along with us in reading through the New Testament this year, Today's text, Acts chapter 16, is the story of Paul's second missionary journey when he shows up in, in Philippi. We, aren't, we didn't like plan it that way. We're not that smart and that planned out. But uh, it's a great coincidence in the providence of God that we can read about both of those things um, today. Ever since Paul planted that church in the early 50s, so for the past 10 years now, that church, the Christians in Philippi, had become a continual source of joy and encouragement to Paul. They'd even become financial supporters of him. They'd enabled him to continue on his missionary journeys. And their encouragement became especially meaningful now as Paul in the early 60s AD finds himself in a Roman prison. So that's the the big picture background. That's the setting of the book of Philippians. But let me tell you why I, why the elders and I are really excited to walk through this book at this particular moment in the life of our church. Like the church in Philippi, we're 10 years old. We're 10 years old. And it was a real gift last week for many of us got a chance to be together to celebrate our 10th anniversary uh, of being Liberty Church. Uh, I hope that we continue to run in the spirit of gratitude, uh, the spirit of hopeful expectation that we got to share in last week. That day was just an incredible gift for me. I rode high on that for several days this week. Um, Just hope we get to continue in that. But we're 10 now. That day's kind of come and gone. We're 10. And like the church in Philippi, we're a largely healthy church. Not perfect by any means. We have gaps. But by the grace of God, we're not overwhelmed by these massive, plaguing problems. If you compare the book of Philippians with the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, you'll see really quickly the difference between a church that is largely healthy and a church that is plagued by major problems. And you'll see a little bit about how the Apostle Paul writes to and interacts with churches in those different places. So by the grace of God, we can say this morning, we're a lot more like Philippi than we are like Corinth. At the same time, uh, we need to continue to grow in faith. We need to to not become complacent or stagnant, uh, but to keep pursuing Jesus faithfully, to keep sacrificing Uh, for our own spiritual growth, uh, as well as to become increasingly effective and fruitful in ministry, in our neighborhoods, in the central Pennsylvania region. So the elders and I are convinced that this is a moment where the Spirit of God is saying to us, Liberty Church, press on, press on. As a more mature church now, we need to be stirred up again. And, and, and I'm sure you'll have you'll observed this in your own life and around you in your life in different ways, but zeal and maturity do not often go together, right? Zeal and maturity don't often go together. Usually, young people, young churches, they're the zealous ones, and they, they tend to match that zeal only with how naive they are at the same time. But as older, mature churches start to shed some of that Uh, some of that naivete, as they become less naive, they also tend to shed some of their zeal and some of their passion. Can we just say this morning, that's not how it's supposed to be. That that might be normal, that might be how it works, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so in this letter, you're going to not only hear Paul stirring up the Philippians, you're going to see him modeling this in his own life. See, Paul is now, when he writes this letter, he's a missionary veteran. Ten years after he's planted this church in Philippi, he's now completed not only his second, but his third missionary journey. And he's been beaten multiple times, and he's been exiled, and he's now sitting in a Roman prison. So there's nothing naive left in Paul at this point. And yet, his maturity is matched only by his zeal. So I'm really excited for us to dive into this book confident that God has a lot for us to learn and to put into practice together in the coming weeks and months. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump, jump right into Philippians chapter 1. Let me pray. God, we pray even right now in this moment that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts. We pray that as your scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear what you are saying to us today. Stir us up by way of remembrance, by way of the confidence that we can have of your presence and your work in us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, once you get past the greeting, he's, he's announcing who is writing the letter, who he's writing to. He's offering God's grace and peace to them. His opening lines are prayers and thanksgivings. Prayers and thanksgivings. And the opening prayer and thanksgiving has a theme of completion. Completion. That the Philippians, as he writes, will abound in love more and more. That they will be ready for the day of Christ. They will be pure and blameless and ready for that day. And then right in the middle, right in the the center of his prayer for the Philippian Christians, verse 6, that Jesus will bring to completion the good work he has begun. So let's consider three things about this completion that we see here in these early verses of Philippians. First, confidence of completion. And then second, longing for completion. And third, prayers for completion confidence of completion longing for completion prayers for completion so first let's talk about confidence confidence Uh, about a year ago almost exactly a year ago uh, i was on a trip to charlotte north carolina and i had a couple hours to kill when i was waiting for my friend to arrive at the same airport we were going to rent a car together i had a couple hours to kill before he arrived so i decided to head over to the billy graham library it's only a few minutes away from, from the airport there in Charlotte. Uh, Billy Graham, as perhaps many of you know, uh, was a prolific evangelist, held conferences not only around the United States, but around the world over many decades. Uh, and he saw just an, I mean, God through him used him in just an incredible way to bring many people to, to faith in Jesus. So his library there outside of Charlotte is just a a fascinating place to learn about who he is and was and to learn about his ministry. But one of the most memorable things that day for me was his wife Ruth's tombstone. Uh, Billy and his wife Ruth, they were actually buried there on the the grounds. Uh, It's a a big space, big area. They're buried on the grounds there. Uh, As the story goes, years before she passed away, Ruth had seen a sign while driving on the highway and requested that those words be engraved on her tombstone. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what highway road sign words would make sense to put on a tombstone? Well, this one said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. End of construction, thank you for your patience. I think the reason that that was so impactful to me is that I'm painfully aware of how much construction there is left in me to go how unfinished I am and of the patience that that demands, that that requires of the people that are around me in my life, my family first and foremost, but my friends, you, the people of this church from start to finish, our lives on this earth are a construction project or we might say more accurately, a reconstruction project. Made made in the image of God, we have been corrupted by sin. We have been wrecked and ruined and broken down by sin. But trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are being remade. We're being remade. From the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we begin a lifelong process of becoming like him. The theological term for this is sanctification. Sanctification. Dallas Willard, a phenomenal Christian author, was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California for many years. He defined sanctification as simply the Christianizing of the Christian. The Christianizing of the Christian. So we're already Christians solely by faith in what Jesus has done. We receive our new identity and our names are written in heaven. Our names are graven on Jesus's hands, as we sang about. But we are meant to look more and more like Jesus each and every day until our lives are over. It's not until the end of our lives, as Ruth Graham's tombstone said, that the construction comes to an end. If you're a Christian, if you're here this morning, you've put your faith in Jesus, and especially if you've been seeking to follow Jesus for some period of time in your life, then you already know probably how unglamorous a process sanctification is. And even more than unglamorous, how violent it is. We have this often idyllic picture in our minds of what this process of being transformed is going to look like. And it's like us in the early morning hours with our cup of coffee and little steam rising off of it. And our Bible's open. And Jesus just, man, meeting us in those moments. And like that's when the real heart level change is happening. And sometimes it does. But you know what in, in the Bible, you know what the imagery is for sanctification? Violent. Real violent. It is dead branches on vines and trees being cut out, pruned off of you. It is iron sharpening iron, metal against metal with some sparks flying. It's fire burning away the impurities so that all that's left and all that remains is the pure gold or the pure silver. And it's not only violent, it's slow. It's slow. One degree of glory to another is how violent. The Apostle Paul puts it in a different one of his letters. So it doesn't matter how many years or how many decades you might have been following Jesus. Each and every one of us in this room this morning finds ourselves in the very middle of our own sanctification. We find ourselves right now in the middle of our own sanctification. And so when Paul here can write, when he can begin this letter, talking to all of these unfinished men and women in Philippi and say, I thank God for you. I thank God for your partnership, your relationship with me brings me joy. Our ears should perk up. How could you be so thankful for someone who is so unfinished? And as we know, if, we, if we're Christians, if we're walking this out in our lives together, when you are a party to someone else's sanctification, you are like the anvil on which God is hammering out their imperfections. Like It costs you to be in relationship with other people as they are being sanctified. So how can that bring joy like Paul writes about here? And then when when he writes in the next verse, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Our jaws should hit the floor. Our jaws should hit the floor. How is Paul so sure? Where does confidence like Paul's come from? There are a lot of days that I do not have that confidence about my own life or other people's lives at all. That There are days where I feel like I haven't matured, where I feel like I have not become more like Jesus at all. There are days, and maybe this resonates with you, where we return to our pet sins, our besetting habitual sins, and we're, we return to them, as Proverbs puts it, like a dog returns to its vomit. And we're just back there again, and we thought we never would be, and we swore to ourselves that we never would be, but there, there we are. But look what Paul says here. It's not, hey, you know what, Philippians? I'm confident that you're going to pull it all together and make it work. It's not, hey, I'm confident that you just need a little more effort and a little more time and you'll get there. No, he says, I am sure of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. Paul actually has very little confidence in the Philippians he has infinite confidence in Jesus. His confidence is not built on what he is observing in their lives in any given moment. His confidence is built on Christ. And he is saying here, Jesus does not draw people to himself only to, let, to cast them away later. Jesus does not offer his life for forgiveness and to overcome the sins of the world only to let some of that sin persist and remain in his people forever. Jesus completes his work. If Jesus begins something, you can be sure he's going to see it all the way through. That's the source of Paul's confidence. And it's the, it's the source of ours. This is the confidence that, that we actually are invited to have about our own lives and about one another's lives. Very little confidence in you or me, but infinite confidence in Jesus. Before we move on, Two dangers, a ditch really on either side of the road that we need to be attentive to and avoid. Some of us, when we think about this process of becoming like Jesus, some of us overestimate our progress. Some of us talk about sin as only a past tense thing. Stuff that we used to do, because we all have that, stuff that we used to do in our lives that was not very Christ-like. What about today? What about today? What about the ways that you and I are not like Jesus right now? Right now. See, confidence in Jesus' completion frees you to be more honest about that. If you're not confident, then you're going to pretend. You're going to feel like it is on you to bring this work to completion yourself. And when you see things in your life that are not complete clearly, you're going to pretend like they are anyway. And it's tragic, but true that far too many churches and pastors and Christians are really good at pretending. We're really good at pretending. We get, we, we act like we're way more complete than we actually are. And then when somebody actually points out some of the ways that we're not complete, rather than owning it and saying, you know what, you're right. I'm still very much in the middle of my sanctification. We, we get defensive and we start fighting them and say like, well, how, it's just a mistake. How dare you accuse me of having sin that still remains in my life? So some of us overestimate our progress. Others of us underestimate our progress. We might have no problem acknowledging that we are incomplete, but we become really discouraged and despondent about that. We become cynical, resigned, passive in our approach. Well, I, you know, I guess this is just what I'm always going to be like. I guess I'm just never going to be more like Jesus in that aspect of my life. Like that's, I guess, just my personality personality. I'm just going to keep living that way. I want you to look at me this morning, church. Jesus is the one who has saved you. He has taken a spiritually dead person like you, like me, and he has made you alive in him. And do you think if he is capable of doing that, that he is therefore incapable of taking you as an alive person now and transforming you one degree of glory to another? He, He has already done the hardest thing. He's already done the hardest thing and he has stormed the gates of hell in love for you and he has pulled you out. He has taken you out of the domain of darkness and brought you into his own kingdom. He will surely not leave you where you are right now. He will not leave you where you are right now. Yes, you are unfinished, but look at from where you've come. Look at from what you have been rescued. Don't underestimate your progress either. Whether you're prone to overestimate or underestimate, the remedy is really the same. Like Paul, we build our confidence not on ourselves. We build it on Jesus. Second, 2nd let's consider Paul's longing for completion. Longing for completion. Something we're going to see throughout this letter in the coming weeks and something you actually see all throughout Paul's writings, he wrote a lot of the, the New Testament, is how Jesus's work... Spurs and compels our own work. So we don't do things in the Christian life. We don't do things to to make up for some inefficiency or ineffectiveness in Jesus' work. But nor do we sit back passively and presume upon Jesus. His work actually compels us to live in response and a reflection of that. So Paul here is supremely confident that Jesus will complete the work he has begun. And at the very same time, he keeps praying for it. He keeps praying for it. He prays that the Philippians will grow and become more like Christ. His confidence actually fuels more prayer, not less. We're going to talk more about the specific prayers in the next and final point. But what I want you to see first for a minute is the longing, the affection that motivates Paul's prayer. The Philippians, as he writes there in verse 5, are partners in the gospel. Partners in the gospel. That's the word in the original Greek language. That's the word koinonia. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago when Steve Huber was preaching on Liberty Communion Sunday, that's the word he was talking about. It means fellowship. It means communion. Paul Paul and the Philippians are are in this together, in other words. From the start, they have become co-laborers to see the good news of Jesus. Proclaimed around the world uh, to see people served in Jesus' name. That's included financial support. That's included material support for Paul as he continues his, his missionary journeys. So that's a really important relationship. But think about it. It's mainly a functional relationship. It requires a lot of head and hands. A lot of thinking about how we're going to do stuff together. A lot of action. It doesn't necessarily require a lot of heart. But as Paul continues praying, it's clear the Philippians are not merely partners. They are partakers, verse 7. Partakers with me of grace. It's, It's way deeper than just function in relationship. It's a shared identity. Paul is saying here, we have tasted and received the grace of God together. We have been taken out of the domain of darkness together. We will, on that day of Christ that he's writing about here, on the day of Christ, you and I will rise together. And that creates this deep heart-level affection for them that goes way beyond just being shoulder-to-shoulder laborers for the gospel. So Paul writes here in verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. I mean, that's an incredible Statement And more so, the more we realize what Jesus' love for his people actually is. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. Paul loves these men and women with the love of Jesus for Jesus' people. It's an Old Testament scholar named Alec Motyer. He explains, Paul is not just talking about imitation here, imitating Jesus' love. We do that, but this is something more. Alec Motyer writes, The wording here demands something more than the notion of imitation. Paul is saying that it is as if Christ were expressing his love through me. Two hearts are beating as one. Indeed, one heart, the greater, which would be Jesus' heart, has taken over and the emotional constitution of Christ himself has taken possession of his servant. This is the kind of love and affection that we are meant to have for each other in Jesus' church. That we become actually conduits of Jesus' own love and affection for one another. When we pray for one another, when we pray for each other, we're not only meant to pray checklists of requests. That's good and right, to pray for the things going on in people's lives. But we are not just partners in the gospel. We are not just co-laborers. We are partakers of the very grace of God with one another. And that is meant to overflow the recognition of the beauty of that's meant to overflow in affection, in love for for each other. How do we do that? How do we start to gain this kind of affection, this kind of longing for each other? We do it by looking at each other and seeing not only who we are right now, but who we will become, what the completed, fully Jesus-like, fully sanctified version of one another will one day be. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm gonna ask you to take just a few seconds and wherever you're sitting, you can stay sitting, but I want you to look around the room at the other men and women who are sitting in this space with you right now. And as you look at them, you can go ahead and start looking. I know some of you have to turn way around and some of you have to look really far forward and we all have neck pain but look, look at each other. And as you look at each other, I invite you to begin to see not only who those men and women are right now, but to start to imagine who a fully Jesus-like, sanctified version of that person will look like one day. What will that be? Who will, who will our friends in this room, who are family members in this room, what will they be when fully completed by Jesus? reflecting on this and and how that completed life then goes on forever, C.S. Lewis once wrote, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics, There are C.S. Lewis says no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never talked to a mere mortal. See, I could I could tell you this morning that it's important to pray for each other. It is. I I could I could make the application point of this whole sermon: pray like Paul. Pray like Paul. Take what Paul prays here. Pray that for each other. That would be a great application point for this sermon. That would be faithful to the text. It would be awesome. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that if you were to get even the smallest glimpse of who the men and women in this room will actually be when fully completed by Jesus, if that image even begins to take shape in your eyes a little bit this morning, the longing that you have for each other to experience that, you will not be able to stop praying. It will overflow from your heart. You will want so much for each other to experience as much as they possibly can of what Jesus will one day do in full. So look at each other with those eyes. Look at each other not only to see people where they are now, but who they will become as a fully sanctified version of themselves. Long for each other to experience as much as possible right now of what we one day will experience in full. Third and finally, Paul's prayers for completion. We might ask rightly, so what does this actually look like? Uh, What's the specific substance What's the actual evidence that we are on the right road, that we are on the road to completion? Well, Paul here prays a few things in rapid succession in the last three of these verses, verses 9 through 11. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but it gives us plenty to consider and plenty to pursue for today. So first, verse 9, Paul prays that love may abound more and more. One of the ways we know that we're on the right road, the road to completion, is that we're seeing an increasing amount of love in us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I am nothing. I am nothing. I might have all these incredible gifts. I might be really effective and useful. I might be seeing God even do incredible things through me. At the end of the day, if it's not motivated by love, it's worthless. It's empty noise. And later in that same chapter, Paul goes on to write, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he concludes that chapter then by writing, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. Do you see how this has everything to do with completion? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Even these three things that Paul takes and elevates, three things abide, faith, hope, and love, well, one day, faith will be sight. And the things that we, know, that we cannot see right now, that we, that we believe because we, by faith that we do not see, we will one day see. And hope will one day be fruition, will be fulfillment. We no longer will hope for them because they will actually be. They will have happened. But love will go on forever. Love will go on forever. Forever, the perfect love of God and the perfected love, our perfected love for each other and for him. Completion means perfect love. And so we press on to live in light of that now. And I just would invite you to consider this morning and as you are in Bible study groups and conversations this week, does your definition of maturity, does your definition of progress in the Christian life line up with this? Or is is your aim something else? Is your your definition of maturity knowing a certain amount of content from the Bible? Doing a certain number of things for Jesus? Serving a certain number of hours? If your definition is something other than love abounding more and more all the way until that day, then you have a different goal than Jesus does for you. Second, second, Paul prays that this love would be matched verses nine and 10 with knowledge and all discernment that we may approve what is excellent. So Christian love is not empty sentimental sentimentality. It's not well-wishing. Christian love is deeply anchored, deeply rooted in truth. That's especially true when we think about our love for God. I love how Jen Wilkin put it some years ago. She put it, she said, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So real love for God, the actual genuine article of love for God, is only possible if we come to know the God who is actually there. the The God who has revealed himself. The same thing is true with love for one another. It has to be rooted in truth, in knowledge and discernment. So we as Christians, we are called to love all people regardless of what their life looks like, regardless of what they believe or don't believe in any given moment. But love means that we will only, as Paul puts it here, approve what is excellent. We will only approve what is excellent. Think of it this way. If God has a real design that is good, and if sin has real effects that, that ruin and corrupt and destroy, and if Jesus is bringing his work of redemption to completion, that's what he's doing right now, then real love lines up with that story. We love people in accord with the true story of the world. Approving worthless things then is not love. It's actually unloving. It's saying to other image bearers of God that their current condition is as good as it's going to get. How hopeless is that? It's saying to other image bearers of God, like, well, you tried hard and you've gotten this far. I guess that's that's good enough. When actually Jesus, the king of the universe says, I'm going to bring it all the way to completion. All the way to completion. Third, verse 10, Paul prays that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure and blameless. The word pure means unmixed, so untainted. The word blameless means without stumbling. So completion means that you will one day be completely free of sin. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> for me, it's hard to imagine. But there will be no, one day there will be no more wearying mixtures of sin and holiness in your life. No more stumbling back into the same sin that you keep finding yourself in over and over again. There will one day be no more confusing, maddening, lifelong Romans 7 declarations where Paul says, the things I hate, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Why is that? Have you been there? Maybe even recently, why do I do the things I hate? Why can't I just do the things that I want to do? One day, men and women, you will be free. On the day of your death, or on the day that Jesus comes again, whichever one of those comes first, you will stare those besetting sins of yours in the eye, and you will say, I am finally done with you. I'm finally done with you. We're meant to live each day as preparation for that day. We're meant to become by the power and grace of God more pure and blameless each and every day of our lives here. So when you stumble in this life, when you do the things you hate, when you're weary of the ongoing mixture of sin and righteousness, sin and holiness in your soul, remember that it is not long until the day of Christ. It is not long until the day of Christ. Keep repenting of your sin, keep believing that Jesus is just as committed to seeing you, the work that he's begun in you to completion. In fact, on those days, he's even more committed to seeing that work through to completion. His heart is even more with you in that moment when you think you can't, poss- can't possibly be true that he's gonna do it. Those are the days that he is right there with you and saying to you over the lives of the enemy, I'm gonna bring this work to completion. Keep Believing that. Keep repenting of your sins. Keep believing that. Fourth, verse 11. Paul prays that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, that more visible evidence would come out of our lives that we actually belong to Jesus. That there would be more observable demonstrations that we are becoming like him. So pray for yourself and for each other. Pray that our lives would give more evidence. Pray that our lives would more visibly display, for example, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love and joy and peace and patience and the the other five that are included there. These are assurances uh, to us and others. Um, Not only, they're assurances to us and others, not only that the Holy Spirit is present and working in us, they're assurances that we really are on the right road, that we're on that road to completion. And then finally, verse 11, Paul prays that all of this would happen, as he says there, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. Sanctification is not a Christian version of self-improvement. It's not the Bible man alternative to the broader culture Superman. You can say it that way. It's not, it's not like we've got self-help and then like the Christians talk about sanctification. Some people think about it that way, but this is something altogether different. When other people see our lives, when they see our progress, they aren't meant to say, man, what incredible people. I wonder what book they've read. I wonder what steps they've taken. I wonder what they've figured out, what code they've cracked. No, they're meant to say, what an incredible God. What an incredible God. What kind of God could take such ordinary, broken, unfinished people and be transforming them into this? His name is Jesus. That's what kind of God. And he is so committed to completion in you and in this world that he offered up his own life. And the cross is forever a declaration that Jesus will not let sin have the final word in you. He will not abandon you in the middle of your transformation, in the middle of your sanctification. He will not leave you unfinished. The more honest you are about how incomplete you remain. The more that your affection and your prayers are being shaped by this vision not only of who each other are right now but who you will become one day and the more your efforts are reflecting that Jesus has already done the hardest thing. He has already finished the greatest effort. The more people will see your life in real highs that completion is Jesus' work. It will be to his glory and praise and not yours. As Kent Hughes once put it, it is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I am not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. So church, let us press on to completion. Let us press on to completion. Jesus has done the hardest thing. He's done the hardest thing. And I would invite you, as we get ready to come to this table this morning, he has done the hardest thing. Here it is. Here it is. And if you are walking in the middle of your own sanctification, burdened, despondent, despairing by the sin that remains in you, don't try to deal with that on your own. Even during this time this morning, come pray with some of us who are going to be available in the back. Risk the vulnerability to invite people into that part of your life. We will not be surprised by that. We will not think anything less of you because the elders of this church and myself are very much in the middle of our own sanctification too. So I want to invite you this morning to have hope for the completing work that Jesus is doing, to look and see the work that he has begun and to come to this table to receive this grace and to have confidence that he will carry it all the way through. He is the one, friends, who will bring his work to completion in you, in you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, Jesus, for the grace you have shown us. It is by your grace we are what we are. And your grace frees us to be honest about where we actually are right now, incomplete, unfinished, in the middle of our own construction. So I pray that as we come to this table, we would come rejoicing that you have done the hardest thing, longing for the day we will be with you in your kingdom at the wedding feast of the Lamb for all time as the perfected, completed versions of ourselves. But as we look back and as we look forward, meet us right now by the power of your Holy Spirit in this moment. Remind us that you bring to completion what you begin in this world and in us. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.